0: Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am here every week at this time. I have got what I believe is a great show lined up for you today. Joining me on today's program in the second and third segments will be Mr. Michael Pento, He is the founder and president of Pento Portfolio Strategies. I'll be chatting with him about uh, the U.S. economy and what his forecast is for your investments. You'll want to stay tuned for that. You know, this past week in our Portfolio Watch newsletter, I commented on a theory that is called modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory. Now, the reality is it's not all that modern, because if you look at what modern monetary theory really means, it hypothesizes that as long as inflation is low and you can print your own currency, government deficits don't matter. In other words, you can print as much money as you need to pay your bills. Now, modern monetary theory has gained some support among politicians who are proposing massive new government programs with no way to legitimately get them funded. Now, count me among those who don't believe it can ever work. I happen to be in good company. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink this past week called the whole whole notion of modern monetary theory garbage. But as I said, it's not really all that modern. I mean, in the 3rd century, the Roman government used modern monetary theory in a sense. It started paying its bills by making coins with higher and higher denominations, and it had to do this because the denarius, over the course of several hundred years, went from being pure silver, it had tangible real value, to something that was really comprised of nothing more than worthless alloys. Now, every government today does this to some extent. Nathan Lewis had a great article in Forbes last month. He talked about this whole notion of money printing. He he cited that beginning with the Bank of England in 1694, central banks were private, for-profit institutions. By the end of the 19th century, this model of central banking had spread over much of the world, And he writes that printing money turned out to be very profitable. But in time, a lot of people complained about the banks making all this money from printing money. So, what happened? Well, the Bank of England was officially nationalized in 1946. Now, the Federal Reserve, which is the U.S. central bank, remains a privately owned entity, but it officially remits its income to the Treasury. Now, we have to assume that's true because the Fed is not audited, so I guess we'll just have to take their word for it. Now, Mr. Lewis continues by writing this. Recently, the Federal Reserve held U.S. Treasury securities amounting to about $2.2 trillion. The interest income from this is remitted back to the Treasury. In 2017, it amounted to $80 billion. The Treasury pays the Fed, and the Fed gives the money back to the Treasury. It's as if the Treasury paid nothing at all. In effect, the interest rate on these bonds is zero. If you issue a bond and never pay either interest or principal, then it is as if you made them disappear. The Treasury has, over the course of decades, managed to make $2.2 trillion of bonds disappear. This is functionally similar, Mr. Lewis writes, to if the Treasury simply ordered up $2.2 trillion in the form of $100 bills on forklift pallets and then used them to pay bills. So certainly, there is some benefit to politicians that like to spend too much money, To use this theory called modern monetary theory but again not all that modern at all now with the money printing that's taken place why have not we seen massive inflation well one private sector debt levels are really high which has a deflationary effect And the U.S. dollar is still widely used in international trade, which means that foreign countries and foreign entities have to inventory some U.S. dollars in order to participate in international trade. But as we have often discussed here on RLA Radio, there is an intensifying move around the world to eventually abandon the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. On next week's program, I'll interview the Uh, Chief Research Analyst for Gold Money, Mr. Alistair McLeod, and we'll talk about that. Now, embracing this whole idea of modern monetary theory to even a greater extent than we already have would only accelerate the pace at which an alternative to king dollar would be developed and adopted by the rest of the world. And the trouble with modern monetary theory is that by the time it fails, It's too late to fix it. The painful economic reset will have already occurred, and history teaches us that money printing never works. Now, speaking of being in good company, not thinking that modern monetary theory can ever work, Charlie Munger, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, the business partner of Warren Buffett, recently offered some insights on his view of this idea. He said, and I quote, Nobody knows how much of this money printing we can do. And of course, we have politicians who like and are in both parties who like to believe that it doesn't matter how much you do, that we can ignore the whole subject and just print money as convenient. Well, that's the way the Roman Empire behaved, and then it was ruined. And that's the way the Weimar Republic was ruined. And it's there is a point where it's dangerous. You know, and of course, my attitude when something is big and dangerous is to stay a long way away from it. Other people want to come as close as possible without going in? That's too tricky for me. I don't like it. Mr. Munger continued by saying, we're using methods that are so extreme that maybe we can't use a lot more of them. And we don't know the answer to that. If an economist told me he knew the answer to that, I wouldn't believe him. Either way, it wouldn't matter which way his opinion was. I just think we don't know. Now, we have long advocated here on the program that you consider using a two-bucket approach to manage your retirement assets. The two-bucket approach contains not only traditional assets, but also contains some tangible assets. And if the money printing continues, if... Modern monetary theory is embraced in earnest, you'll be glad that you did. I'll be back with my guest, Michael Pento, after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. I'm very pleased to have as a returning guest on RLA Radio, Mr. Michael Pento. Michael is the president and founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. You can learn more about Michael and his company at pentoport.com. That's pentoport.com. And his most recent book is The Coming Bond Market Collapse, which you can find at Amazon. And there's a great description of the book uh, on the website as well. And, Michael, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you.
1: Always good to be back, Dennis.
0: Well, Michael, let's talk a little bit about your book, The Coming Bond Market Collapse, uh, because in the book, um, you describe that, in your opinion anyway, the United States is approaching the end stage of what you describe as the biggest asset bubble in history. And for those folks that have lived through the real estate crisis, that have read about the stock market collapse at the end of the Great Depression, that's a big statement. Can you explain?
1: Well, maybe it's the second biggest bubble. Now, on retrospect, Dennis, probably the biggest bubble ever in the history of economics is the faith in fiat currencies. You know, as to why anybody believes that they should hold faith in the purchasing power of confetti printed by central banks is ridiculous, especially now. You know, we learned recently that Mario Draghi, for example, you know, he just ended his quantitative easing program in December of last year. He was supposed to raise interest rates in the summer from not not from you know five percent or four percent from a negative level. Okay, so the deposit rate with the ECB is that you loan money, you have reserves as a bank to the ECB, and they charge you for that privilege. So they want you to loan that money out as fast as possible. That's the ECB strategy. So rates in, in going out on the German boond ten years were. 0.1% on a German boon. This is how warped and distorted interest rates have become throughout the world. And Mario Draghi was supposed to go down the road of raising interest rates finally. By the way, as, as, just as a, a note, Mr. Draghi took his tenure as the head of the European Central Bank in 2011. Dennis, do you know how many times he raised rates in those eight years
0: let me guess zero.
1: Zero. <laughs> zero. We have a, a president of a major central bank who has never raised interest rates one time in his entire tenure of eight years. I mean, that, the, so the, the biggest bubble perhaps in my, uh, uh, my view is the fate in fiat currencies, but that goes right, right alongside, dovetails nicely with the second or tied twin bubble of bond markets around the world, sovereign bond markets around the world. Just let me just give you one fact. We have about $9 trillion worth of government debt around the world with a minus sign in front of it, a negative yield. And when you think about the amount of debt that we have outstanding, so we are now at $250 trillion of global debt. That's up, three, up to 330% of global GDP. That has increased by $70 trillion since 2008. And you would think that would cause people to have some pause before they put their money in a Japanese government bond going out 10 years and receiving less than zero. But they don't have any pause. People, and mostly central banks to be honest, have gotten themselves caught in this loop where they're going to be They will very soon, in my opinion, be the only buyers of sovereign debt. So just to wrap up this thought, when you get your inflation, central banks, that you have so earnestly desired to achieve, this magical 2% rate of inflation, don't you know if you have 1.5%, it's very dangerous to just destroy your money by 1.5%. You have to have it be destroyed at an annual compounded rate of 2%. I'm being sarcastic, I hope you hope that the <laughs> um but but you're going to give the faith in these central banks to hit an inflation target at two percent and somehow magically stick the landing. I have my doubt, so the bond market is so dangerous, it is a unprecedented bubble of immense humongous proportions. It will burst. And unfortunately in my opinion cause a situation much worse than the Great Depression circa 1930
0: so uh, Michael a couple thoughts come to me but when what would you say to people who say look the reason that uh, the yield on US government bonds is is so low uh, is that one uh, if you go to Europe or Japan the rates are lower and secondly Uh, U.S. government bonds are still the safe haven, and they'll always be the safe haven. What would your response be?
1: Well, it's not as if I haven't ever thought about that question, so I'm glad you asked me. My my, my first, my visceral response here is, why are bonds in Europe so low? And why are bonds in Japan so low? So you can't just move the question outside the United States. You can't just say, well, you know... The U.S. Treasury note would be 6% going out 10 years if we didn't have the situation of Europe, you know, the comparative yields being so low. Now, let me ask you this. Monthly quantitative easing in this world was $180 billion a month. That was the average amount in 2016-2017. And that served to push down yields to the basement and the sub-basement and the floor of history. Or you can use the word toilet, that's probably even more descriptive. So think about this, QE has ended in the United States, it has ended in Europe, and it still is in place only in Japan, primarily. The Bank of England is, is no longer in QE either. So if you look at major global central banks, the only ones still out there printing money, like Al Capone, is the Bank of Japan. So if quantitative easing has gone from 180 billion per month dollars worth hundred billion dollars 180 billion dollars per month to zero and below zero, the question I have is why haven't bond yields soared in that context? And the only answer I can give you is that the fixed income market is aware those investors are aware that the global economy, is supported by rubber bands, tape, and glue. And we are very close to a deflationary depression worldwide. And that is the reason why bond yields are so low in Japan and in Europe and throughout the world. And why even here in the United States, even though QE ended in 2015, we seem to get, can't get off of, uh, this uh, gravitational force to pull the 10-year Treasury note down towards 2% and even below. That's my answer.
0: Well, Michael, let me. Uh, we, we've had debates on the program with different guests, and we've talked about the fact that uh, if the Federal Reserve were to re-engage, or these central banks around the world were to re-engage in quantitative easing, and they do so at a even a greater extent than they did before, that we could see inflation or hyperinflation. And yet, when you look at private sector debt levels around the world uh, they point directly to or, or to the deflationary uh, scenario mm-hmm. that, that you uh, that you outlined so which will it be I mean if we see the the stock market crash the real estate market crash and, and you're already seeing signs of the economy slowing both. yeah is is are, are we the gonna see the both. Fed re-engage we're gonna see both
1: well, well we're gonna see both well I you know I the way I manage money I created a model, a 20-point model. It's called the Inflation, Deflation, and Economic Cycle Model. And that's how I manage money because I realize there's so much debt outstanding in the world that has to be defaulted upon. Now, how governments decide to default upon that debt is all of the relevance in the world because if they're going to default on, the bet, on, the, on that debt through deflation or explicitly, that means that you want to invest more in treasuries and utilities short-term fixed income, and being short the market. Because that's a devastating deflationary, depressionary scenario if they were to restructure the debt. It's the honest way of getting out of this mess, the the $250 trillion of global debt. The other way, which is uh, the more surreptitious and uh, uh, easier way to get out of this debt, is through inflation. And that come, comes about through money printing, as we all know. So that's, so that's the key. How are they going to default on this debt? Now, central bankers aren't that bright. I, I want to just uh, – uh, I mean, unfortunately, they've made themselves gods. But they aren't really even demigods. They're false gods. They've given themselves the power, way too much power, over the cost of money. And the cost of money decides the price of every asset on the planet. But they think they know what they're doing, and clearly they do not. I mean, I just hearken to uh, Member Janet Yellen talking about quantitative tightening being exactly like watching paint dry, or Jerome Powell in early October saying that the quantitative program, tightening program, was on autopilot. And then you know the stock market fell apart, the high yield and junk bond market seized up completely, and guess what? All of a sudden we realized... The one true mandate of, of central banks is what? To make sure we have a protracted, never-ending bubble in asset prices. That's their only mandate. It isn't full employment. It isn't stable prices. It's to make sure the stock market never goes down. Isn't that sad? But anyway, pulling back for a second, we saw what I modeled and correctly saw was going to happen in 2018 was that central banks weren't aware of the disaster they created. They didn't understand the trenchant and dangerous move from $180 billion of QE per month to negative. They didn't understand raising, as far as the Fed's concerned, they didn't quite grasp raising interest rates nine times since 2015, December 2015, while you're also selling a half a trillion dollars, $500 billion of your balance sheet. At the same time, concurrently, they didn't understand how deflationary that was going to be. And they learned very clearly and very quickly, I might add, in the fall of 2018. So the answer to your question is both. There will be periods of massive destruction and deflation and depression, but there will also be times of stagflation and intractable inflation. And if you understand where we are, you can model that divergence and, and invest appropriately across that spectrum. I believe you'll generate a ton of alpha for, alpha for your portfolio.
0: Well, we're going to in the next segment. Talk a little bit about specific investment strategies. If you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Michael Pento. He is the president and founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. You can learn more about his work at pentoport.com. And uh, we have just a couple minutes left in this segment, Michael. T- tell me what you envision Fed policy to be moving ahead.
1: Well, um, as I said in the uh, a few minutes ago, i um, Prior to today, just going back a few quarters, the policy from the Federal Reserve was to normalize interest rates. Don't forget, back in October of 2018, Jerome Powell said that we're going to have to go to neutral, so neutral according to their R-star Fed funds rate would be neutral around 2.5%, and then go for a period of time about 100 basis points over Their neutral rate of two and a half percent. So that's what really spooked the stock market. They thought they were going to go to two, from two and from two and a quarter, two and a half to three and a half. Stay there for about a year as they continue to drain over two trillion dollars off of the Fed's balance sheet. Well, that plan didn't really work. So what I see from central banks around the world is a return back to zero. I mean, they are stuck because what they never realized, Dennis is that when you take interest rates to 0% and below in order to bail out asset bubbles, which you engender, is a massive increase in debt levels. And at the same time, the gap between asset prices and the underlying economy explodes. That, that gap widens incredibly. So you have today a situation where asset prices in the United States, if you look at the market cap of equities, It's back close to 150%, one and a half times the underlying economy. So you have debt that's growing much faster than the economy, asset prices that are growing much much faster than the economy. So hence, there is no escape. But you ask me what I think they'll do since they only have one single mandate is to go back to zero as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, go back into QE. As far as the ECB, they just launched recently this uh, TLTRO, which is basically a scheme where the central bank loans money to the commercial banks. And if the commercial banks lend it out, they don't have to pay all of it back to the European Central Bank. It's a great idea. It's a wonderful idea. But they all lead to the same conclusion, that interest rates in nominal terms will be stuck near zero forever. And in real terms, they're going to grow further and further negative. And I just want to wrap this up, this this uh, your question, with this one thought: If if the Bank of Japan is stuck at a negative interest rate and never ended QE, if the ECB is stuck at a negative rate and is going back to another a third round of this TLTRO lending facility, do you really believe the the Central Bank of the United States can raise interest rates? No, they can't because the dollar would soar and the already falling uh, interest rate, uh, I'm sorry, uh, earnings per share on the S&P 500 would fall even greater to a greater extent. So we're all stuck at zero in nominal terms and heading further into negative t- territory in real terms.
0: Well, the bad news is that that's all the time we have with Mr. Michael Pento in this segment, but he will be back after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, Just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Mr. Michael Pento. Uh, Michael is the president and founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. His book is The Coming Bond Market Collapse. You can learn more about his uh, work and about his book at pentoport.com. And, Michael, we talked in the last segment about uh Fed policy moving ahead, central bank policy really around the world moving ahead, uh, in your view, remaining at zero because they're really painted into a corner. And we talked in the first segment a bit about fiat currencies. So my question is, do you see when all this unwinds and blows up that some currency around the world will go back and tie itself to something tangible like gold?
1: I do. And that's part of the Great Reset. So I, I think that but that's many years away, Dennis. So I think that right now we're still fighting that deflationary depression that from that gravitational pull of 330% debt to GDP ratio globally, never before reached or even imagined in history. So um, there's still that gravitational pull towards deflation. But I do believe on the other side of this, there's going to be a... A trend towards runaway, or I call it intractable inflation. Now, when you think about intractable inflation, it's, I'm not calling for hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is something that's pretty much uh, secluded to isolated banana republics that are not uh, uh, do not have a reserve currency. So I don't pr- I don't predict that for Japan, Europe, or the United States. But there is the condition of stagflation and intractable inflation in the matter of Rome. So if you think back to the Roman Empire, it was really the, the only dominant world power. Um, they really uh, were the dominant uh, trading currency. People in Rome didn't trade their denarii regularly with other nations outside of Rome. But still, because of the condition of a slow economy and debt... The Roman Empire experienced 1,000% inflation per annum, and that's where that's the general trend of where I see some of these larger developed economies heading. Before, see, this is going to take years to develop. So you have deflationary depression now. Then you're going to head towards this Romanesque um, multi-double-digit inflation rates until inflation gets so high that these global central banks get together with the imf and perhaps embrace a new currency they default upon a lot of this debt embrace a new currency that's a crypto-based currency blockchain-based currency and it's at that juncture that you reset currencies and you reset the debt now it's my hope and belief that they they link this blockchain currency to gold maybe maybe dennis central banks and the people that give these these individuals power will take that power from them as far as the base money supply is concerned base money supply should always rise commensurate with population growth plus productivity growth so the growth growth in the labor force plus the growth rate in productivity which is around two percent, which happens to be pretty much around where the mine supply of gold has increased. So if you take your cryptocurrency, your global IMF currency, you peg it to a precious metal, keep it in specie, make sure it doesn't rise more than one and a half to two percent per annum, all of these bubbles and all of these debt issues go away. Maybe, if we hope and we pray that we that after this next global period of incredible financial and economic chaos ends, that we will finally see the light.
0: So, Michael, it sounds to me like if you're you're saying deflation first, then you would have to be bearish on real estate and stocks presently. Is that a fair way to read what you're saying?
1: Yes, that is correct. So clients of Penta Portfolio Strategies have hedged their long exposure and the long exposure we have are in low volatility investments in utilities short-term bonds and gold precious metals we've hedged that out with shorting the uh offset that by short positions in the stock market yes
0: and you know michael there's a there's a story that's really not being discussed much but uh, i think it's going to be something that uh, we're going to hear more about as as the years pass and that is this whole level of underfunded pensions at the at the state level. What's your take on that?
1: So uh, we have about $4 trillion of uh, un- underfunded liabilities in the uh, pension programs in the United States alone. Um, this is one of the reasons why you see central bankers caught. So if you think about these underfunded pension plans, what did they do when they took interest rates to 0%? Of course, they weren't making their 7 or 8% per annum uh, uh, goals in order to make these plans solvent because yields were, were, ne- were never anywhere close to that around the world. So they went out along the the risk curve, and what did they do? They went more and more into equities, further and further out on the risk curve and further away from treasuries and into junk bonds. So in November and December uh, of last year, when the junk bond market froze up, and stock market went down 25 five to 30%, depending on which average you're looking at, um, the Russell 2000 dropped 30% in just a couple of weeks, um, you know that all these pension plans would be insolvent permanently. They're even more insolvent than they already are, Dennis. So the, the central bank has no choice but to pursue aggressively a attack towards inflation. And that, by the way, isn't just a central banker uh, uh, prerogative. That's going to be seen more and more in the fiscal side of the ledger. So you're going to see more and more um, candidates like uh, we we always talk about this AOC person in the United States. I try not to mention her name, but people like her, like Bernie Mado- Madoff, who believe in you know the, they're embracing the modern uh, monetary theory where hey we we have our own printing press. Why do we even bother taxing people at all? Let's just, you know, spend money in the most unproductive manner and we'll just print it. And I'm sure that'll work out well because it's never been tried before. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure those, you know, you know, these people are very ignorant people when it comes to economics and mathematics. So, you know, I'm not I, I guess I'm surprised but maybe I'm not that surprised, but that's where we're headed. So we're we're headed for um runaway debt, run we're already there. Runaway deficits. Don't forget the deficit in the United States is $1.2 trillion in fiscal 2019, which is we started in October of last year. Um, that's in the good times, Dennis. You're talking about five or six percent deficits to GDP in the good times. You know, when when you have a recession, debt runs up by another trillion or trillion and a half dollars. So you're looking at uh, deficits, annual deficits as a percentage of GDP could be 15% or higher. So, you know, this is a very scary time. And I, and again, I, I, when I come on these interviews, I try to tell people I'm not a permanent Cassandra. I'm not a perma bear. I'm just laying out the facts. I mean, it is a fact that we have $9 trillion or so of negative yielding bonds around the world. I didn't make up that number. This is a totally new paradigm. I don't know how old, you, how old you are, Dennis, but did you ever imagine that sovereign nations in the developed world across the globe would have negative yields to the tune of almost $10 trillion? This is, a, this is totally new. Did you ever believe that central banks would be printing money uh, and buying corporate bonds? That has happened. Did you ever believe that the Central Bank of, of Europe would be loaning money out in perpetuity for the third time now, without end, and then it, and have it lent out in a negative uh, interest rate environment. So these are these are unusual times where we have uh, asset bubbles that have totally detached from underlying growth. You have massive amounts of debt, and you have uh, the entire fixed income spectrum um, in a massive and dangerous bubble.
0: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, the clock tells us we have to stop. Um, Our guest today has been Mr. Michael Pento. I would encourage you to check out his website at pentoport.com. His book is The Coming Bond Market Collapse. And, uh, Michael, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for a terrific interview.
1: Always good to be back on with you, Dennis. Look forward to the next occasion.
0: RLA Radio will be back after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, Just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I want to take just a minute and thank Mr. Michael Pento for joining us on today's program as well. This past week, I read an article that was published on FEE.org, and if you listen to last week's program, you know that we had Mr. Larry Reed, who is president of the Foundation for Economic Education on the program. And the article is titled, 80% of millennials are worried Social Security won't be there for them. That probably does not come as a surprise to anybody listening. Now, how do you define a millennial? Well, a millennial is defined as someone who was born between 1981 and 1996. That means today... Anybody between the ages of 23 and 38 would be considered a millennial. Now, Social Security is basically a hand-to-mouth program. The article uh, talks about the Social Security Trust Fund. However, uh, I pulled out an article that does a nice job of explaining how the Social Security Trust Fund actually works I'll share that with you momentarily. However, when I talk at a social security maximization event, I explain that the social security trust fund is akin to me reaching into my briefcase and grabbing my emergency check and writing it out for $1 trillion and then declaring myself to be the world's first trillionaire. It's a trillion dollars on paper, however, If I go to the bank and try to cash that check, that's when the problems will begin. That's the Social Security Trust Fund. It exists only as an accounting function. Now, there's an article that was published by the Heritage Foundation, written by David John, and this article was written 15 years ago. It's really telling. I'm going to give you just a little bit from the article. Mr. John starts by saying, as political leaders debate how to best fix Social Security, many policymakers are focusing on the wrong issue. Their sole concern seems to be the date when the Social Security Retirement and Survivors Trust Fund will run out of its paper assets. This mistaken emphasis misses the fundamental point about Social Security's problems. There is no cash in the Social Security Trust Fund and there has never been any. The Social Security Trust Fund is merely an accounting device filled with IOUs that future taxpayers must repay. Mr. John writes, Far too soon, payroll taxes will be insufficient to pay all of the promised benefits. Well, we are now at the point that Mr. John warned us about. More money is going out in Social Security benefits, then is coming in in the form of Social Security taxes. Now, to go back and look at actually how this trust fund works, if you go to work, Social Security taxes are withheld from your paycheck. Your employer then periodically sends a lump sum payment to the U.S. Treasury that includes all the income taxes and Social Security taxes and Medicare payroll taxes paid by you withheld from your paycheck and the matching, they're called contributions, but let's call them what they really are, they're taxes, and the matching taxes paid by your employer. Now the Treasury receives the payroll taxes, and they pay the monthly benefits out on behalf of the Social Security Administration. So the money stays in the hands of the Treasury until it's either paid out as Social Security benefits or until the government spends it in some other way. The reality is no money ever goes into the trust fund. The trust fund balance is the result of two accounting entries by the Treasury. First, The Treasury estimates how much of the tax receipts are Social Security taxes and credits the Social Security trust fund with that amount. Then the Treasury subtracts the total amount paid monthly and Social Security benefits benefits from the trust fund balance. No money actually changes hands. These are just accounting entries. So now Social Security taxes are still credited. Keep in mind, no money actually gets deposited into the trust fund. It's an accounting entry. And as benefits are paid, which are now more than the taxes that actually are uh, paid into the Treasury, that trust fund balance actually now is beginning to diminish. But it's it's a diminishment, to use that word, in paper only. This is really just another deficit spending program at this point by the government. Now, these special issue treasury bonds are really nothing more than IOUs. They're no more, than they're not a lot different than the trillion dollar check that I wrote myself, which isn't backed by a trillion dollars. Now, Transamerica Center for Retirement did a study And it said that, and it concluded that most workers, most millennials are concerned about Social Security. They're concerned it won't be there, but they're also depending on it as a meaningful source of income during retirement. Now, that is a problem. So how do we fix this? Well, Gregory Bressiger, who is a writer for the Foundation for Economic Education, says that it's got to be radical change. And he quotes F.A. Hayek, who back in the 30s wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom. In fact, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. I am just listening to it again now. He asked does anyone think that the average skilled worker is better off because the government spends his money for him? Now, if you take a look at the Social Security Trust Fund, one would have to argue no. And Gregory, in the article, says if someone contributed $300 a month into a retirement account for 40 years and put it into stocks from the time they were in their 20s until their 60s and averaged slightly over 8% per year, which in this environment might be admittedly optimistic, they would have $1.4 million at the end of 40 years. Today, the average Social Security recipient gets $17,000 a year from the government. Now, Greg makes a great point in the article. He said, won't some folks badly invest their money? He said, for sure. You can't argue that people will make bad decisions in investing. But you cannot argue the government has made good decisions. You can't do worse than zero, and that is what is in the Social Security Trust Fund. So if you're listening to this program today and you are among the millennials, you need to take responsibility for your own retirement. Will there be Social Security benefits? I don't know, but certainly you want to take matters into your own hands. And this is not just a problem with Social Security. Many state pensions who have been managed by politicians are also significantly underfunded. We have resources available if you'd like to learn more at our website. The website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. retirementlifestyleadvocates.com is the website. Uh, You can get links there to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program podcast. If you want to listen to an interview again, that's available on the website. And we also have a book that will be released here in the next month designed for those millennials, and it's titled Finding Financial Freedom. So you'll want to pay attention and uh, remember to look for that as well. That's our program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. Talk to you again next week.